Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within, and I am your host, Elaine miller Karras. My show today is entitled, Meaningful, Conquering of Dieting, Weight, and Body Image Issues. I want to share a little bit um, about the industry, and then I'm going to introduce my wonderful guest to you today. Um, so there's a, a $702 billion global diet, nutrition, and weight loss industry that shows that people worldwide are devoted to achieving maximum health and their desired bodies, yet mainstream approaches are failing these individuals, and sadly, science supports this. Intent on gaining the health, confidence, and happiness that diets promise consumers um, and they're, they're, they're continuing to try. Along the way, they often become sad and frustrated, believing they're failing when they're not. They need a legitimate alternative path. So today, my guest, Ali Spots DeLazer, licensed marriage family therapist, licensed professional clinical counselor, said certified eating disorder specialist, supervisor, and eating body image expert of fighting with food and body image. She will reveal lessons discussed, less discussed truths, and risks of pursuing maximum health and weight control. She is going to introduce her unconventional, hope-filled self-help book, Meaningful, 23 Life-Changing Stories of Conquering Dieting, Weight, and Body Image Issues. I'm going to say it again, (laughs) Meaningful, 23 Life-Changing Stories of Conquering Dieting, Weight, and Body Image Issues. And she's going to offer us at least three tips to guide us um, how we can maybe spend more time in self-appreciation, wellness, and fulfillment. So welcome, Ali. I'm so happy to have you today. Thank Thank you you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I've been really looking forward to this, so I'm glad. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad, and I have a number of questions for you. But before we get into our prepared questions, is there anything in particular on your mind today that you just want to share before we get started? Oh, you know what? I think that we just said it. I'm just open and happy to be here and um, welcome your questions. Well, Ali, I, Ali I'm really um, also very, um, I've been very moved by your transparency and how you have been open about having struggled with eating, body image, and self-esteem issues for, for decades. And as a therapist, that personal disclosure, I know can be controversial. Right. Yet, I guess as a therapist too, I think some of the things that we've experienced depending on the person, can also be so empowering for them. So why do you share and how do you manage the risks that are involved with that? Thank you. Uh, gosh, that is such a, it, I would say that this is specifically applicable to eating and body image struggles. Why I share is because when you're struggling with eating and body image issues, whether that be non-clinical up through serious clinical eating disorders, I, I believe it's all on a spectrum. It can feel incredibly hopeless because food is every celebration. You eat three times a day, the commercials, you go to buy gas, you have to reach over food. And when your relationship with food becomes unnatural and stressful, 
it's exhausting to have so much food around you. So I think knowing that people do break free of it in genuine ways and have purposeful, contented lives can offer some hope. Um, How I manage it is I've been working with, I've been around people with eating and body image issues and eating disorders, frankly, my whole life. So not only have I had a lot of relationships with people, I myself have had decades of it. I've become an eating disorders, you know, specialist. So I see so much of it and weaving through to figure out what you can disclose that imparts hope, but does not elicit competition does not elicit somebody to feel worse about themselves, does not elicit or trigger. Like sometimes when people share their stories, I find myself getting so scared for what they're saying because maybe someone hasn't thought of a few of the tricks they're talking about to help them lose weight or to help them believe that they're going to be healthier. So then people try these things that can be incredibly damaging and unhealthy. So there's a lot to consider from competition to triggering influences. And honestly, I, I own it if I, have, if I mess up. And most of the time, I, I think I, the way that I have gauged it throughout the years and learned about it, first of all, I got to study with Carolyn Costin, who is kind of the you know, predecessor of the person who created self-disclosure pretty much in eating disorders because she was really open and out there. And I remember when I started working at one of her facilities with her, I had this like dirty secret that I was free of my issues. And the fact that she came from a space of, no, we can talk about it. There's, you can believe in being in recovery forever. You can also believe in recovered. And so that was a really impactful for me. So I learned from her, and then for myself, I check in with my people. After I've shared something, I'm like, how does that feel? Sometimes they'll ask me something and I'll say, why do you think I'm probably not going to tell you the answer? And they'll be like, because I'm going to compete. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> well, and I guess the other thing that I'm hearing from you, which I think is really important for our listeners to know, there may be many people listening from you know many places around the globe thinking, oh, I'm the only one that's ever experienced this. I'm alone. I'm hopeless. And what I'm hearing from you is that there is a hope and that what you do is you try to kind of give that experience of what may be a hopeful message when you share your own story. Without pressuring them to have to go all the way. Like sometimes when you're in it, when you're in an eating disorder, the thought of being fully recovered can be overwhelming and actually self, like it can defeat the purposes. I really believe that if you want to get to a spot where life's just a bit better, that's okay. Yeah. But it helps to know that people have, there's an army of people out there who are free of eating and body image issues, which is difficult in our society. And you nailed something. Why I ended up curating the book, Meaningful, which I recognize is a ridiculously long title. <laughs> yes, it is <was> long. <laughs> I was thinking search terms at the time, but meaning yeah. it's interesting because meaningful was always the title and I didn't really know how to write a book. So it I threw it in the trash so many times I cannot tell you. Um, but each time I fished it back out, a big piece of that was because of what you were saying, not being alone. That is so huge. The other thing is, because we live in a society that is constantly attacking us for not being in the proper BMI, quote unquote, which I'd love to talk to a little bit about, talk to you a little bit about BMI, because people use it as I'm not healthy if I'm not in this. Well, actually, you may be healthier than somebody who is in it. So, 
I wanted to give hope and I wanted to give community. I wanted people to see themselves in other people's stories, whether it was non-clinical, serious eating disorder, wherever we were on the spectrum, because part of eating disorders actually is you don't quite notice that you have an eating disorder. Like it's really hard. Sometimes people think that they're failing dieting. They just haven't found the right health practice. They haven't found the right thing to fix them when actually they've fallen in to developing an eating disorder. So while they're pursuing and getting more and more rigid and stricter and stricter, they think they're doing it in the pursuit of whatever they believe the weight loss or believe the health practices will give them. I believe it's a lot about being accepted. I believe it's a lot about, you know, wanting to fit in um, and wanting to be safe in the world. So while they're pursuing these really beautiful things, they don't know that they've gotten really sick until it's so severe that they're like calling a therapist or they're telling someone. And that I, I wanted to get in with people earlier to look at our practices and, and wonder. Maybe so bringing I, in more conscious awareness of yes. what's happening. So because maybe they're even their, their behaviors or you say the tricks, they're not really realizing that this is slowly evolving into a condition that really is causing maybe self-harm. And also causing medical them to harm. suffer, 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 suffer. Suffer, medical harm, quality of life distress, all in the pursuit while you believe you're doing the right thing to make your life better. It is such a confusing thing. And if I tell someone, well, gosh, you know, do you, th- do you think that you might have gotten sick? And they didn't ask me about that. Then I've given something uninvited that usually gets pushed back on because, and I would love to ask you about the trauma piece of this, the um, slow society is constantly telling us we're not good enough. We don't look good enough. We're not doing good enough health practices. We can do better. We can be more disciplined. We're bombarded by these messages. And so when you're trying to do the right thing, quote unquote, like if a doctor says to lose weight, but they don't know you have anorexia and maybe you have an uh, anorexia in a larger body, well, you're going to get sicker while getting the instruction of getting healthy. Well, you know, when you bring up the issue of trauma, the, you know, in, on my show, we have spoken a lot about adverse child experiences and the yeah. Hallmark study that was done in the 90s by Dr. Anda and Dr. Folletti in San Diego. And basically, they were in, they, Dr. Folletti is an endocrinologist, and he was working with a weight loss clinic. And, oh people, and he, people would come to him, and they were 100 pounds or more overweight, and they would lose the 100 pounds. Yeah. Um, and then within a short period of time, he would lose them to follow up and then contact them again. They had gained all the weight back again. And so then he and his associates started looking at what were some of the the common factors that were impacting the individuals. And most of them, you know, there were men and women, but I think probably the majority were women. Um, and that was that they had had adverse child experiences. They chose to call them that rather than adverse traumatic experiences. Good. Um, but they were things like child abuse, sexual abuse, um, mm. a parent incarcerated, things that we could say are very stressful experiences that impact the human nervous system. Sure. And that if a person had four or more of these, there were 10 altogether in their original study, that they would have um, greater chances of, as they age, to have pulmonary, lung disease, diabetes, 
uh, depression, suicide attempts. So there's mm. obviously, you know, a, tra- a traumatic piece connected to for some people's struggles. So I think we can't leave that out the equation, which I think the other thing is getting why getting help for many people can be can be life changing. And that kind of segs me. It's a segue into the next question because you, again, with transparency, talk about how you resolved your own issues. Do you think you could share a little bit about that? Oh, sure. And of course, there's that, you know, um, well, it's in the book. (laughs) (laughs) And we want them to go and buy the book, of course. Yes. (laughs) You know, in, in figuring out, I hadn't quite boiled it down because when I was first ill with, and, and I actually flew right into anorexia nervosa, which was interesting because it wasn't my first diet, but an adverse child ex- childhood experience probably was one of the diving boards. See, people who get actual clinical eating disorders, from what we see in the research, they've got a vulnerability. It's a biological vulnerability. So I liken it to a button inside of us. And then the cause research, we're not great yet on, you know, this will cause an eating disorder. It seems to be a combination of various um, environmental cues, maybe temperamental cues, a genetic propensity. So there's these different things that line up and push the button on. So my button got pushed on. And then for decades, I probably weaved in and out. But at the time, we barely had heard about Karen Carpenter because I'm okay. older. Right. And could you, could you share with our audience what is anorexia nervosa? People may not know. Anorexia nervosa is really, in, in kind of a nutshell, an inability to nourish yourself, even if people are saying, you know, you're looking extraordinarily unwell, you're unhealthy, the person really can't feed themselves properly. And a lot of society wants to say, well, just eat. And when you have anorexia nervosa, you're not able to give yourself appropriate nutrients. And then the body often has tremendous physical consequences because when we're not eating, it affects our brain chemistry. It affects how we think, our mood, our sleep, our physical, eventually our heart and our bones, our laboratory work. And I want to say that anorexia nervosa, contrary to the myth that it's only in uber thin people, it's not appearance-based. There's something called atypical anorexia, which is shown to be about equally devastating and the person Mm. you won't see the illness because their body may look quote unquote normal or as you use the the o word um people sometimes don't favor the word overweight but some it's a medical term so it's there um but people who have some size can actually suffer from anorexia also keep in mind the dsm has some weight stigma type stuff because you can have anorexia with binge purge when you hit a particular weight, it actually is bulimia nervosa because an old qualifier of anorexia had to be underweight. Mm. So I kind of look at all of those symptoms as symptoms of a greater problem, a greater, I don't mean to be problem saturated, but a greater pain that needs soothing. Well, can I ask you a question? Because I think this is often I find very important. And that is the words that we use semantically that yes. can be so ingrained in our society that also can be weaponized against us. 
Yes. So I'm wondering if there's certain terminology regarding this issue that you think we that you want to encourage us to start using instead of some of like the O word, like you mentioned. Are there some words that you'd like to share with us that we could maybe start incorporating into our language? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Um, a few things on the IC endings. Someone, quote unquote, anorexic, bulimic. Um, they have those disorders. If someone has those as their main identity, that can be so constraining. So I, I really encourage people to keep it to person first, a person with anorexia, a person with food and body image struggles, a person struggling about the size. Some people, you know, people have a right to whatever words that resonate with them. I would invite you to ask. Well, that can be really awkward, too, um, if it's not invited. But instead of just saying obese and overweight, those are really pathologizing. And when you think of the shame that society throws on those words, they can be problematic. I prefer um, with size, um, in a body with size, some people like bigger, and I'm like, bigger than what? So there's so many different terms about it. I think we're all just people, period. And so what I'm also hearing from what you've shared with us so far, one of your, um, is one of your passions is kind of depathologizing for people, <laughs> um, like these terms. And also because I know that you really try to work in the, in the area and the space of acceptance. I do. Uh, even the word like self-esteem, one, if, if you're going to improve your self-esteem, well, that's implying that you have rotten self-esteem, which means you failed, which there's a lot of implied pathology, a lot of implied failure in so many things that we talk about. So the power of words, I prefer self-acceptance over self-esteem because self-acceptance, you know, maybe you're not going to love your body. You know, Elaine, I would love to know a little, if, if you're willing, you're like as people in the world, men, women, people who have gender fluidity, we struggle with where is my body acceptable? Am I acceptable? Well, if we can accept the pieces inside of us, those are our anchors. The body on the outside can change in a second. So it's a little tricky to have to have the pressure of loving your body. Like even body positivity can sometimes pressure people and then they feel that they're failing because they don't love their body. And so I want to talk to like, let's say you, you and I were talking in, in a clinical room. I would ask you if, you know, maybe we could just get to not hating your body would be the first place. And then we want to see later if you want to go further. Maybe you accept your body. Maybe you appreciate that it gets you like the beautiful work you do. You slept on floors and tents and like your body. Allowed- My body has served me very well, right? That's, see, now that's, that, right. that's acceptance. <laughs> See my point? Yes, it does. And it's like, oh my gosh, my body breathes for me. (gasps) My body has gotten me through some very difficult physical situations. I am still here. You know, it's kind of like this kind of loving appreciation of, of, you know, that it has showed up for me in so many different ways. And I know it always, you know, there are going to be times when, you know, there have been times when my body has challenged me. And yet, but I don't want that to change the, the idea that I'm still a person of worth. That there is that, that regardless of being bigger or smaller, that I am a person of worth. 
Yeah. And I, I think that can be difficult um, in today's world, especially when we see on the news, everybody's airbrushed and, oh, they can take, you know, they can take pounds off your hips. I mean, you see people in real life, they go, mm, that doesn't quite look like the person that's on television, right? And that's kind of what I meant by we're continually almost attacked to fit into certain one-size-fits-all boxes. And that was the other, you know, as we loop back to Meaningful, it's 23 stories, different presentations, different ways of being in the world, of not fitting into one, because a one-size-fits-all box does not fit all. And if you don't fit it, then how do you feel about yourself? And, and people who are self-critical, that can really take them down in their sense of self-worth. When you were speaking of your body serving you, the analogy I used, and I kept trying to shove it into the book, but it just never fit, is it's like I'm a suitcase. And all that messy stuff inside, like let's say the suitcase burst open, all the messy stuff falls out. But that suitcase keeps all my organs in, it keeps my essence in, like I'm super enthusiastic, I'm super passionate, well, all that is zipped in by the suitcase that rolls me to things in life that I love doing. Now, I love them, but I didn't always. And that's part of the self-acceptance. Well, and that's what I, if I can ask you when you talk Please. about your own journey. Yes. What are the things that you learned that really shifted you that said, oh, my gosh, I have to start looking at myself in this way instead of this way? Because here you are impassioned yeah. by your work. I can I tell am. when I talk to you, you love the work that you do. Um, you, <laughs> you have a certain effervescent quality about you, Ali. I think you probably people have told you that. But I mean, what, what, what shifted? What were the, the things that happened to you, the steps? Because I'm sure our, our, our listeners want to know your journey. And also, I think that leads them to reading more about your, in your book. Thank you. One of the most profound steps for me actually deals with a negative emotion, quote unquote, that many people have a, have a hard time with. Um, I think that anger is awesomely informative. It says something's out of place, something's wrong. And maybe situations were tugging at you prior. For me, certainly uh, dizziness, um, that I couldn't go to parties without freaking out about the food. Um, so, like, my life was presented one way and people admired my discipline and told me so. And I looked one way in the world and then the door would shut. And I was like, dude, this just stinks, man. <laughs> so, um, what happened was I started to get angry when I was looking through many, many years of photo albums. And I remembered my dress size or my weight in most of the pictures, but I couldn't remember the events. And I had some really cool stuff. I was like, why am I on, why am I a mermaid on a float? Why am I, you know, in a parade? Why am I with that celebrity? Why am I at this party? Why, like, why, 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 why? And I was like, all I remember is my dress size and or my weight. And I started to get angry. My parents were getting a lot older. Um, and that was scary that I, I wouldn't remember stuff with them except by weight and size. And I was like, what the heck? What is, this is not cool. And um, I had met someone really, really special. And I really like, I could go back to dating pictures and sometimes not even remember a lot mm. except my weight. And so I just thought that I am so through with this being such a 
prominent piece of my life and, and it stole my memories. I think that's the anger point. It stole my memories and I was mad. I almost said a semi-swear word. I was mad. <laughs> and that helped me to start wanting to stop letting it steal my memories. That helped me to not keep the secret anymore. I'd been going to therapy for a while and I finally just had to fess up and be like, I, I need accountability. And she said, you know, you, you, I didn't, I wasn't totally aware of what was going on. And I was like, I know, I didn't want you to be. That was my stuff. That was private. But now I need accountability. So you were trying to keep that suitcase very closed. So no one knew what was inside of it. So when you finally got in touch with your anger, it almost was like a key that was unlocking what was inside that suitcase. It was a wonderful key. Now, anger is uncomfortable and can be scary, but I ask people to go underneath it. What is it telling you that you've not been paying attention to? So it had to yell at you. So I want to hear more about this because I think that our listeners are going to want to know about how you started really dealing with the anger that sounds like it was such a in really a pivotal moment in your life. So when we come back from our great break, we will continue our conversation and we will hear more from Ali about her journey and about what led her to her own self-acceptance. And also we're going to learn some more, I guess, would it say be strategies? Some more of the, your ideas of what might help people who are listening begin their journey as they also hopefully go to Amazon and buy your book. (laughs) (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. Which, of course, now say the name of the book really quickly before we go to break, so I want to make sure we, we, we say it a number of times. Meaningful, 23 life-changing stories of conquering dieting, weight, and body image issues. Wonderful. We will be back in just a few, few moments and continue talking about this wonderful book with my, with my guest today. Thank you. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. 
Build resilience, awaken hope. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. This is Elaine Miller Karras at Resiliency Within, and I am talking. I hope I'm going to say your name correctly. <laughs> correctly, Ali, Ali Spots de Lazar. Did I say that right? I like it fancy like that. Let's just de leave Lazar. It like that. Okay. <laughs> I, anyway, so. <laughs> so we were we were talking about anger, but I know there was a question you wanted to ask me as well. So go ahead. Yes, I just wanted to touch base back because I get so passionate and so full about this stuff that sometimes I don't even know if I finish off of a sentence. Is there anything that I've said so far that your brain kind of grabbed as incomplete? And it's a, it's okay if I'm putting you a little on the spot. Oh, well, no, the only thing is I, I'm really interested in what you talked about getting in touch with your anger. I think it was really quite um, profound to me, my curiosity about when you started to look at the at the pictures of you throughout your life and how all of a sudden you said, I don't remember that. All I can remember is that, oh, that was my dress size. That's how much I weighed, which usually goes along with the judgment about saying I could have been thinner or I could have looked better because then it's another way that we, we, you know, we can chip away at how we can accept ourselves. And so why do you think we, why are we chipping away? What is it underneath Elaine? Do you think about why are we so mean to ourselves? Why are we pushing ourselves so hard? What's the underbelly? Well, you know, I think, you know, you know, we've both been therapists for many years and I think that I would see in, in people with so many different backgrounds that were so outwardly, like you say, successful, but there almost was this core at the bottom of your suitcase that was really layered at the bottom of the suitcase, I am not good enough and I am fraudulent and I am playing a scene like in a movie and I have really fooled everybody that I am somehow a person of worth, of competence, but really if they only knew the truth, yes, they would know that I was not, that I'm enough. just a fraud or that I'm not enough, not only not enough for me, but I'm not enough for anyone. Right. And so I think you just nailed why so many of us are so desperate to look right. There's a morality about eating healthy in, our, in many Western societies. I think underneath is, gosh, if I'm not enough, maybe this will help me feel enough. And I really want to say, you are enough. You are enough. I am enough. We are enough. Can we, in my self-acceptance definition, because I've got, since the book, I've actually come up with kind of a definition. It's not about not striving to change things that we would like to change, but it's about recognizing the light and the dark of all the parts inside of us and being accepting of them. And then if you want to change them, you can figure out why and then go forth. But to just automatically not be enough and not know those wonderful parts of you, the light and the dark of them, gets in the way and keeps us, I think, in this cycle of things that don't work. And when you said about the looking at the pictures, 
that was a beautiful observation. It, I don't know why I didn't look at those pictures and pick on myself that time. I think that I had been getting tired. My, I used to call it maintenance. Oh my gosh, this is so unhealthy. I used to call all of my weight management and health management practices maintenance. Now, I did some really unhealthy stuff, like undeniably unhealthy. And yet, I was like, whatever. I, 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 this is just what I need to do to feel less insecure in the world. So, I was okay with these maintenance practices. And then I think I just started getting worn down and tired of missing things, of having cruddy, cruddy self. Like if the weight changed, my self-esteem that day would just be awful and I'd be cranky. And then I, you know, the um, dieting, I started getting grumpy. Something you said earlier also on Oh my gosh, my brain just popped back to this about the study where those people had trauma and had regained yeah, the weight. The ACE study, yes. I'm not sure why this is not more public, but most people regain the weight after dieting. So we actually, whether it's to continue with these industries making money, I'm not sure why, but we are literally set up to fail. Hmm. Well, I think that goes into the next question, but I, I mean, I, but before we do that, the anger, is there anything more you want to say about how you dealt with the anger? Yes, because where I was going with that is some of these things started to come kind of, to, I started questioning things instead of it being automatic acceptance of all of it. I need to get thinner. I need to do this. I need to get, do try this diet because this one didn't work. All of those things I'm just talking about started to come into question. And I think that is the best space from this conversation with you is to invite people to question what they have accepted as standards they must comply to. It's kind of like their beliefs are driving the engine and the beliefs may be based on er erroneous assumptions about the self. And sometimes we can only break that cycle with anger. And I actually just had an epiphany in this conversation with you, which is, I think that the anger caused me to do lots of things like learn to say no, which, you know, I was like, oh, golden rule. You never want to say no and hurt someone's feelings. But you know what? Oh, my gosh. People learn to say no. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many gifts that that anger gave me. But I think that none of them could have come without starting to question. Some of these mainstream approaches to how to maintain your ideal weight. I don't know to say it that way. Was, was that it? Or you, the to way maintain that- a body that felt like it might be safer in the world than if it was different. So, And the mainstream approach is... Yeah, so this- if you can talk a little bit about that. Um, so oh. what are they and you know, how are they failing people? What do you mean by that? There are so many different ways. Now, keep in mind that I don't propose to have the solution for everyone. Uh, and by the way, that's probably not a popular way to, to have a book when I'm like, it's like a supermarket, pull things off the aisle <laughs> shelf, try them out. If they don't work for you, they don't, because this isn't a here's 10 steps to freedom type of a book. This is an individual process. And that means that the struggles are also individual. Like, let's say that you believe you have emotional eating. Well, someone may recommend to keep foods that you emotionally eat out of your house. But for some people, that will end up in deprivation, which makes them more powerful, which when they get triggered, they will drive to the store and eat four times as much as they would have. So that may not be a great approach for you. For someone who 
has a certain laboratory work that can be corrected by food without the doctor knowing that their food might be already that thing, they may go hypervigilant about their food, which can end up in malnutrition. Setting out for a super healthy diet so that you feel healthy and well can, if you go too rigid, which you won't know often that you're going too rigid, end up in malnutrition, end up in wonky labs, end up feeling sick. So there's all these things, some of these books in in Meaningful, one gal started with one of the number one health-driven books, and it got her so sick with anorexia slash orthorexia. Orthorexia is when your attention to pure foods is so great that you literally almost can't eat other foods. You just can't. And your your social life gets focused around it. And you kind of judge other people for having, you know, something that they consider to be, quote unquote, junk food. Here's another thing about mainstream practices. Junk food. What if that, quote unquote, junk food is actually the food that if you cut it out of your diet, you end up binging on it in a way that makes you feel awful about yourself, probably bloats your belly, probably causes some pain. There are, do you, are you, like, what are you hearing me say about all these ideas? Right. It's almost like anything that they say that could be a strategy to help you can also cause the opposite to happen. Because with anything that we take to an extreme, like almost rigid, this is the recipe. The recipe is not made for everyone. And if we think that the recipe is made for everyone, then we're not going to probably be, um, achieve you know, this, a goal that I've heard from you, which is self-acceptance, that is one of the foundations to be able to love and accept our, our, ourselves the way we are. Yeah. And then, but let's say that you say, oh, I think I love and I accept myself the way that I am, but my doctor says I need to lose 30 pounds. So what do you right. do with that kind of struggle? So cool. I just actually, it was the neatest conversation with a doctor about that. Cause they said, you know, I struggle with the BMI. Well, One thing is we do have choice about a lot of things in our lives. And I'll use, I'm going to out myself here big time. I have a couple of labs that are off, but my BMI is in the quote unquote healthy zone. People overvalue the BMI in my opinion, because someone who is got extra pounds, quote unquote, according to the BMI, but has great labs, lives a full life, is socially active, gets great like movement in their life, enjoys their movement, doesn't feel, you know, there's all these things. Who's healthier? Not me with the two wonky labs. So see my point? Yeah, I see your point. And so I guess it would be important for those people that are saying, I need to do something to really go to their medical doctor and get their labs done. Do you think that would be something something that they should do? I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And then also add on to these things of, you know, what are the other elements? Like, Elaine, let me ask you, name three elements in your life that you consider to indicate your health status. Well, me exercising on a regular basis, um, which I do. I, I walk at least 20 to 30 minutes Um, at least five to sometimes seven days a week. Do you notice that that feels good to you? It makes you feel- Absolutely, because when I don't do that, I don't feel well. So that really really helps my well-being and I start thinking differently about myself. And even I notice that I'm much more solution-oriented driven if I do have a challenge. 
But if I don't move, there's something about movement and me that is very important. So I would say that would be important and a very yep. important health. The other thing is I have this little Apple Watch and I love to track my steps. And so I, that's just an indicator for me because I even look at it and it gives me little reminders and it says, oh, Elaine, oh, okay. goodness, I haven't d- done as much standing as I need to do because, as you know, we can sit on Zoom way too much sometimes. Right. So Which it gives is interesting. me a little indicators to, to be healthier. Well, it, it depends because, again, if you go rigid with that, if you go into overdrive with your steps, it can become negative. Right now, for you, you notice the mental benefit, you notice the physical benefit, probably the fluidity, limberness. Step out of um, the traditional physical things like labs, weight, and exercise. How else do we know when we're healthy? Well, I have a sense of well-being on the inside. It's that mm-hmm. I can sense like my, um, you know, my parasympathetic breathing because I'm a person that works with biology and I track my nervous system and I can feel a greater sense of myself. I also notice a difference if I don't have enough vegetables because I think <laughs> vegetables are healthy for me. And when I eat enough health, healthy, what I call healthy vegetables and fruit, that I have a greater sense of embodied well-being. Sure. Yes. And now sometimes I'm not always as, as, uh, as, I, I look at this. I mean, this is a self judgment. I just realized I was saying this, right? Do it. I'm not always as good as I could be about eating my vegetables. Look See, it's That's so it, interesting. Right? <laughs> yes. And I think even to shift that is I don't always feel as good as I want to. And then I noticed that I was light on my colorful food. Right. So there you go. If I said it that way, that would be a much better way to say it. And I don't even know if it's better, but it's just like it's it's different so that you're not punishing. Like, well, this is but, about how do you feel best in the world? For well, me, but see- mm-hmm. I just want to say something to this because I, I do think it matters because I think if we always have a self-judgment that's connected to something that provides a sense of well-being inside of us, then that does create, let's say, a whole (laughs) plethora, right? A whole bucket full, a whole suitcase full of these thoughts that end up then having the potential to choke us. And if your temperament is one that already focuses on kind of details you can improve with or want to be perfect or any of those things... Yes, you just so nailed kind of this spiral. Um, for me, and, and I'm so grateful a story really showed this in Meaningful. If I'm not laughing, I love to laugh. I love when people have unpredictable humor and it's complex. And like a, a minute after, I'm like, oh, that was really funny. <laughs> if I'm not laughing, I'm not in a healthy space. If I don't have this energy where I feel full in the world from the inside, I know that my something's going on with my health. There are so many more markers, social connectedness. How are we healthy if we're not in Maslow's hierarchy? You know, and not everyone will fit everything, but when we look at what are the things that in my life really make me feel full, purposeful, and here comes the title, meaningful. I'm not saying happy because the opposite of happy is sad and depressed. I'm talking in the bell curve, hang on to the contentment. So can you go, can you say a little bit more? Because you, I mean, obviously the meaningful word is the first word of your, (laughs) the long, your long (laughs) title of your book, but that is a very powerful word. Can you elaborate upon why you chose meaningful. There are 
multiple layers to this meaningful, you get the of fullness. Because in life, so often we're going for a full life in empty ways, in ways that aren't giving us the results. And we think it's us. No, maybe we just need to look for full lives in different ways than we've been doing. Meaning is something that for me, I find so powerful as a driving force. We talk about for your resilience question. I I think that a a piece of resilience is you get up every day, whether you're getting up off the floor from having the, you know, having yourself knocked out the day before in life, or you're getting up from a comfy bed, whatever you're getting up from, getting up every day, whatever status you're in, I consider resilience. But then that second layer of resilience is when you have an openness for possibility and meaning in life. To me, those are the definitions. Now, I've looked up your beautiful definition of resiliency, and I think resiliency has a lot of ways to be interpreted. But I also don't want to, for me, I don't want to judge someone who, you know, yesterday you're eating in body image issues, kicked you to the ground, and now you feel that you're utterly worthless. You're living alone. And in your mind, you're like, I'm alone and I, nobody loves me and can't because I'm that gross. Well, for you, resilience is getting up that day with the possibility of maybe something different or just going on. That's resilient well, and too. So, and so I guess the other part of this is that um, if you find yourself engaging in all or nothing thinking, boom, that is going to be a key indicator that you're not probably living into your meaning and purpose of your life. That's a great, you know, we would have to put that in that, um, in the Venn diagram of health. Yeah, yeah. If you notice that your brain is, I'm always, I'm never, is n- n- like always, never, um, something's absolutely a fact all the time, not, you know what I mean? That whole 100%, 0%, I'm all good, I'm all bad. If you notice that thinking, that usually links to not a very healthy space in the world. So that might be something to fix in the health composite. I think health is so much bigger than a diagram or numeric results. Those are a piece of health. But they're not the only indicator. Correct. Yes. So, you know, I, I really want to, us to, before we finish today, to have enough time to talk about that if a person's concerned that they may have a problem with eating or body image issues, you know, what can they do? They may be sitting there going, okay, I'll try to be self-accepting, but mm. I've, oh, spent, that's not I, yeah. I, I've spent 30 yeah. years with that yeah. suitcase and that suitcase is so heavy, I can't even lug it across the room anymore. Yeah, I, my mind's beat up and I don't like it. I don't like my <laughs> yeah. suitcase. Yes. Um, you know, first of all, a person often won't even wonder if they're not well with eating and body image issues. I, in fact, I just read this study about all these different reasons why people actually uh, purposefully keep eating and body image issues out of therapy sessions with specialists and non-specialists. So the first thing I would say is if you notice that you have stress, I wouldn't even say struggle because some people are like, well, I don't struggle hard enough. I'm not a 10, you know, a scale of one to 10 stress. If you have stresses of any degree with eating and body image, start sharing with people 
because secrecy allows it to get really, really out of control in a way that damages you. Um, if you can afford to talk to a therapist, especially a therapist who is trained in something called non-diet or intuitive eating, they, they, they work together. Um, Hayes principles are beautiful. But because our society is so diet focused and steps focused and focused on some of the things that for a good portion of society will actually amplify distress and unhealth can, I would say to do your research about who you're talking to and ask them some questions. See if they feel judgmental because that's really important. You get to interview us and vet us for your fit. So because so many people are not trained in how to leave those conventionals outside of the therapy room, that sometimes it can just kind of get worse, even dietitians, even doctors, um, I would say vet, 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 come up with some questions that you care about. Like, um, do you believe that you can be healthy at just about any size? Um, how, what does health mean? What would we be working on? How does change happen? Um, what if I don't want to tell you something? Um, talk, Just talk to them about any of your concerns. I don't know if I have a problem. I cannot tell you how many times people with really strong pet, actual pathology, like really sick, will be like, I'm not sick enough to get help. There's mm. something part and parcel to these issues where when you tip over on that spectrum from well, I just have a little bit of, you know, I diet a lot into, I diet a lot, but then one of the ways you can test if you might have a problem is let's say you never eat this because it's bad, quote unquote, bad. It's a bad food. We'll try eating it and see what happens. If it does a mental um, thing to you in a bad way, if you're tripping out on guilt, if you're having, you probably are struggling and may serve yourself by talking to someone. Well, you know, I'm wondering, as I'm hearing you speak, I'm also thinking what comes up for me is the word shame. Um, and, and so when you talked about your own anger, I think that there's also so much shame in, um, in, in this issue and yeah. keeping silent about it because then it opens up, you know, the Pandora's box of then what else is going to come out and then how are people going to see me? But I want to remind people that, the, the Pandora's box was actually a jar, and at the bottom of the jar was hope. Yeah. And so, yes, you may, like you did. You said, I had to really touch into my anger. And when I did that, then all the opportunity came for self-acceptance. Possibility, yes. Yes. So I cannot believe that our time is quickly leaving us, because um, it seems like two minutes since the break. But I would Thank love you. for us in, the, in these final moments, um, if you could share um, with our listeners, if there's one thing that you want them to, be, to take away today from our conversation together. I, th there, I think that I would like them to take away, if you have got any sort of stresses with eating or body image issues, you are so not alone. There is always hope. There is always help. Your gut may say or your inside may say, tell you, don't talk, don't tell anyone. In my experience, that usually makes it much worse. If you tell someone unsafe, that can be a problem. That is true. But see if you can find someone safe to unload some of the internal weight 
of these struggles and then take it from there. I just ask that you start questioning the prescriptions that other people give you for a happy life, a purposeful life, a meaningful life, a safe life, because many of these formulas will be uniquely yours. You've got them inside you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's beautiful, Ali. And I, and I want to remind our listeners that her book, Meaningful, 23 Life-Changing Stories of Conquering Dieting, Weight, and Body Image Issues, I imagine are available in all the different ways where we buy books, Amazon, Barnes mm-hmm. & Noble, or your local bookseller. You can ask for them to order it if they don't have it on um, if they don't have it in their in their bookstore. And yes. I imagine you could probably also have the public library order it. I believe so. And then I did, I recorded the audio version and it was really fun because a lot of the stories were written from transcripts and such. So I, I kind of could feel some of their voices and maybe you'll hear them. I don't know. All right. I love <laughs> that they can also listen to it because I think many of us listen more than we read right now. So please, please pick up this book. It sounds to me that there will be a journey for you that will, I am very hopeful, will lead to your self-acceptance. And I also found, as I've done my work around the world, that when people lose meaning and purpose is when they're in trouble. So any ways that we can find that and to remind ourselves that maybe it's there. And this is, I often end my show with the phrase of what else is true Mm. in your life. And I think what I love about your story, Ali, is that you suffered, you struggled. Mm. And what else is true is you become an advocate for meaningful living and learning how to really change that suitcase. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Ending with the confession, I really struggled with happy for a long time, but I could do meaningful. Yeah. And that worked great for me. So that is what else is true about Ali today. And so try to spend a few moments in this week until I meet you again next week. Thank you for having me. About thinking about what else is true. And oh my gosh, it's been just a joy to have you. Thank you Joy so much. Joy being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye, you so everybody. Much. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.